Well, please turn your Bibles to 3 John with me. 3 John, as we, uh, Lord willing, uh, finish up the last of John's epistles this morning. We, we did it in our first service, so I think we should be able to do it here in, in second service as well. Uh, we're going to finish this up this morning, and I, I wanted to get this done before I, I left. I don't want to leave something, eight weeks suspense here. What, how's John going to end the letter? But the next uh, eight Sundays, we're going to have some, some great uh, speakers here in, in the pulpit. And um, next week, my, my friend from uh, South Africa, Doug Van Meter, is going to be here. And uh, then we just, just some great, great, uh, great opportunities for our church. And I'm going to be here next week to listen to Doug and, and then, uh, then gone. And so but looking forward to listening to those on the podcasts or, or watching the YouTube uh, videos of those. And so I'm excited about what God's going to do uh, through his word in our lives uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. Uh, this morning, as we finish up 3 John, I thought I'd, I'd read all of 3 John kind of together as we finish it up. And so uh, if you're able to stand with me as we read that together, please do so now. And if you need to sit down, that's okay too. And we're going to read 3 John. We're looking at verses 13 through 15 this morning, but I want to give you the whole uh, context here as we, we look at those verses as John ends his epistle. So beginning in verse 1 of 3 John, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these, belie- these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends, each by name. You may be seated. May God encourage us uh, through his word this morning. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for 3 John, for this epistle that we can read and and know and, and think about and know you more as a result and love each other more as a result. We pray that would be the fruit of 3 John in the life of this church that we would be a church who loves one another more because we love you more and who a church who, who manifests that love that we have for you, for one another, in, in what we do practically for each other. Give us grace 
pray for your continued protection upon uh, this body of believers. I pray this uh, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, there was a study published in the American Sociological Review that kind of looked at Americans' attitudes towards friendships or their perception of their friendships. And I believe the, the study was published maybe in 2004, 2005, and it kind of compared and contrasted views from 1985 to 2004, so kind of a 20-year span. And one of the things they found was that in 2004, Americans believed that they had fewer friends. So in 2004, they said they had, most Americans said they had on average two close friends. In 1985, they'd said three. So kind of a, a 33% drop. So kind of interesting. But there's another part of the study that really caught my attention. It said that in 1985, one in 10 Americans would say they had no friends. So, so 10% of people would say, I, I have no friends. And 20 years later, 25% of Americans said, I, I have no friends. One out of four people would say, I, I have no close friendships. That's really interesting, right? Sad. I wonder what would happen if we kind of took a survey of the believers in this room. If we were to ask the question, are you satisfied with the friendships that you have with other believers, what you would say? Based upon my conversations with, with people in this church and other churches, my, my guess would be that many of us would say, I'm not satisfied with the friendships that I have. I feel like my friendships are, are lacking. In fact, I would imagine that a very high percentage of you, if I were to ask the question, are you lonely, a large percentage of you would say, yeah, I feel very, or at least somewhat lonely. Now, assuming I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but, but assuming I'm right, why would that be? Why would a large percentage of people or any percentage of people say that they're lonely? You would think it'd be kind of a simple thing. This is a, a pretty decent-sized church. You could stick all the, the people up against a wall or something or stick them all in a room, and you'd think the kind of you know, lonely people could find each other, and there'd be the friendships established that we'd want to be established. Why would anyone say that they're lonely in, in a church with lots of people in it, or why would anyone say that their friendships aren't what they would desire them to be? Why is that? Why... Don't we find our friendships as fulfilling sometimes as we would like them to be? Maybe one reason is that we don't put the effort into friendships that we need to be, that need to. That, that's certainly a possibility. But let, let me suggest something else, and this is kind of what I want us to talk about this morning. I think one of the reasons that we don't find friendships fulfilling is that we have idolatrous goals and expectations for our friendships. We have an idolatrous perception of what a friendship is. And as our idolatrous perception of what a friendship is isn't met in our life, we find ourselves dissatisfied. 
So, for example, some of us have kind of this, this fairy tale understanding of what a friendship looks like. And maybe we read um, Anne of Green Gables as a little girl or something or uh, a little boy. And there, there's kind of this perception of having this bosom friend and, and uh, this, this friendship is going to look kind of, kind of be perfect. And we're going to have sleepovers and we're going to just always enjoy each other's company. And, and we're always going to say nice things to each other and, and just be on the same emotional level all the time. And so we have this fairy tale understanding what a friendship looks like, this goal for a friendship, and that doesn't translate to real life. And so instead we find ourselves in friendships instead of fictional characters, real people, and we find it not fulfilling. Like, man, I don't have the friendship that I want to because we have a wrong perception of what a friendship is. Or maybe we have a an idolatrous expectation of who's going to be our friend. We've identified two people in the church or in our social sphere like man those two people are the people that i want to be friends with and and those two people don't reciprocate their friendship toward us and man i don't have any friends i don't find friendships fulfilling because those two people aren't responding to me the way that i'd like them to or or maybe our idolatrous expectations for friendships manifest itself in what we expect other people to do toward us in other words we believe that someone else's entire universe should revolve around us. That's what friendship means for us. And so they should be thinking about me and and all their decisions should be kind of based on how it's going to affect me. And when that doesn't happen, my expectations are dashed and I, I don't find friendships fulfilling. What I want to do this morning is, is, is think about how friendship really should look. And friendship, biblical friendship, is only going to work when we define it rightly and when we think about it biblically. What I want us to do is is to turn away from idolatrous goals to look at more biblical goals. And what we're going to do as we see this text in 3 John is we're going to see this relationship that exists between Gaius and John. And we're going to see what a, a biblical friendship looks like. Now, John isn't writing these verses to explicitly describe a friendship. But let me kind of describe to you why what John is is doing here is related to biblical friendship. I want to kind of tie in some themes that have gone through all of the the, the, the books of or all the, um, the, the these these three epistles that John has written. If you're going to sum up First, Second, and Third John using uh, two words, I think you'd use the words love and truth. We see love especially. Now. Um, I have no idea who's running the, the slides right now. I don't see a person with a clicker anywhere. Is there someone there, back there? How are you guys doing? Good, good, comfy. Um, if you could just go ahead and, and go to the, the next slide here. So if, if we're thinking about this this word love, right, we see this this theme of, of love dominating 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? And as we've looked at 3rd John, what have we seen? We've seen that, that love yields what? Love produces next we see hospitality okay so hospitality we define hospitality how we said hospitality is when i give of myself when i use my my physical resources my my house and other physical resources to meet the physical needs of others sacrificially joyfully doing that that's hospitality in third john love is going to lead to hospitality hospitality flows out of a love relationship. Now, 
in a place where love and hospitality exist, in a community where love and hospitality exist, what is going to inevitably result? Friendships, right? Where love and hospitality exist, love and hospitality are going to produce friendships. That's how the Christian life is is going to be lived. Friendship produces the Christian life, or it's how the Christian life is going to be lived. Now, how does that relate to what we're seeing here in these in these three verses? John has been asking Gaius to deal with a very difficult situation. And as John, as John asks Gaius to deal with this difficult situation, he doesn't say, uh, Gaius, um, I'm an apostle, and I'm going to use my apostolic authority and my apostolic logic to give you three things you must do right now to deal with diatrophies. That's not how he approaches this situation, right? What do we see? We see that he deals with this situation with Diotrephes on the basis of his friendship and deep relationship with Gaius. Look at the words that he uses as we we read this this whole thing just a moment ago. He says, uh, beloved Gaius in verse 1. Verse 2, he says, beloved, I I pray that all may go well with you. Verse 5, he says, beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these believers. And then verse 11, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. As John deals with this difficult situation that he and Gaius are in, he does so in the context of relationship. And, And here's the point. You and I are called to exercise sacrificial love. God has called us to do that through the epistles of John over and over again. Where love exists, hospitality is going to flow from that. And in a culture, in a community where love and hospitality are are happening together, the inevitable result of that is friendship. And God has called us to have friendships as we live the Christian life together. You and I are to live the Christian life in the context of relationship. The purpose of our friendships is not to exalt ourselves. The purpose of our friendships is for us to be able to live God-exalting lives in community together. And you and I cannot live the Christian life apart from friendship. If you were to sum up all that I want to communicate this morning in a sentence, it would be this. Christ-like love produces Christ-exalting friendships. Christ-like love produces Christ-exalting friendships. That is inevitably going to take place in a community where Christ-like love is practiced. There's going to be Christ-exalting friendships. You say, okay, fine. But what do I, what do, I do? What do I, I do to, to help foster these Christ-exalting friendships. What does is, what is Christ-like love do in my relationships with others? Let me give you three things in our time together this morning. Number one, three ways, that, three things I do as I allow Christ-like love to shape my friendships. Number one, I pursue deep relationships with my friends. Number one, I pursue deep relationships with my friends. Look at verse 13. Here's what John writes. He said, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. Now, now what is he saying here? Now, as we talked about before, second and third John were both very short epistles. They probably were written on a single papyrus. And uh, it's kind of like a 
first century postcard that John is sending here. And John has talked a lot about deep things on a single sheet of paper, what was most likely a single sheet of paper. I mean, he's talked to Gaius about his prayer for Gaius. He's, he's talked with him about the joy that he has to find that Gaius is walking in the truth. He's talked about the joy that he has to find that his children are walking in the truth. He's talked to Gaius about his hospitality and commended him for his hospitality. He's talked to him about diatrophies and the problems that diatrophies is causing. He's talked with him about Demetrius and what a great guy Demetrius is. He's talked with him about some, some pretty intense stuff. And he says, boy, even still, after I've talked with you about all that, I have What does he say? Much more to say. I have more deep things to talk with you about. I can't fit all that I want to talk with you about on a single piece of paper. Now, I don't want to suggest to you that it's it's wrong to talk about what some people would call trivial things. What some people would call trivial things. It's not wrong to talk with you about the weather. It's not wrong to talk with you about maybe a minor hobby or your favorite sports team or things that some people might consider shallow conversation. That's not wrong. But if all I know about you is about your hobby, how you feel about baseball, where you hope to go on vacation, what sports your kids are involved in. If, if that's all I know about you, I don't have a depth of relationship with you. If I don't know anything about your soul, the type of relationship you have with God, the things you might fear, struggles you're going through, if I don't know those things, if I don't know the things you're truly passionate about, then I don't have a deep relationship with you. And Scripture calls you and I to have a depth to our relationship, a depth to our friendship. Scripture calls us to soul depth friendships. Famous example of this in Scripture is the story of David and Jonathan, right? Jonathan, is, is, is he, he encounters David in, in 1 Samuel 18. He's, he's just seen David conquer Goliath and speak to his father. And uh, Jonathan's father is King Saul. And Jonathan sees in David a kindred spirit. He, he hears his, his passion for God. And that resonates in his soul. He, he's just not desiring a friendship with David because David's a brave guy. Although David is, it's not just that they like the same foods or kind of have some of the the same senses of humor or something, but there's something greater in David that that draws Jonathan to him. It says in verse 1, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. There is something in in David that attracts Jonathan and it's, it's David's commitment to Yahweh God. And as Jonathan and David see that same commitment to Yahweh God in one another, they're they're drawn to one another. There's a friendship that exists that, that has depth to it. One of my favorite people in all of scripture to to think about is is timothy Uh, 10 years ago when i was uh, 10 years younger 
uh, Timothy especially had kind of a, a draw to me as kind of this, this young guy. And most of what we know about Timothy's ministry comes not from someone just describing his ministry, but from Paul kind of making references to Timothy in his letters. And as we see Paul make references to Timothy in his letters, we see that Paul knew his friend well. There was a, a depth to their connection. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians four seventeen, he says, Look, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, he says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. And so as Paul shares things with Timothy, we gain access into the, the struggles that we know Timothy may have had. Apparently, Timothy was a person who kind of struggled with timidity and, and you know, assertiveness and, and not being assertive enough in some situations, perhaps. And Paul knows it. Paul knows his friend. Our goal in our relationships with one another is to pursue deep relationships. You say, well, well how do I do that? Let me give you some practical suggestions, just, just some practical thoughts about how you can pursue deep relationships. Number one, just one practical idea, be someone who thinks deeply about life. You can't have deep friendships with other people if you are a shallow thinker. I hesitate to say shallow person because I don't know if any of us truly are shallow. Don't, don't prove me wrong, but... A lot of us can certainly think shallow thoughts, right? If all we are is just kind of living this, this surface level life and not thinking deeply about the realities of eternity and, and life, we can't pursue deep friendships because there's, there's no depth to us. According to Plato, Socrates at his trial was, was being called on to give a defense of the things that he had taught and he'd upset kind of the, the status quo of a lot of people and especially in the way they, fight, they thought about life and he defends himself, not by saying, hey, I'm really sorry about that. But he says, look, according to, to, to Plato, Socrates said, the unexamined life isn't worth living. It's, it's better to have your, your equilibrium disturbed and to, to have unpleasant realities brought to your mind and to the forefront of your life than just kind of live this fairy tale life that's not true. Right after he said that, he was condemned to death. So it didn't work out great for him. But it's certainly, I think, true, right? Scripture calls us to think deeply about life. Haggai tells the people, consider your ways, put your heart on the road, think, think deeply about reality around you. It's so easy, and as we look at Scripture, and we, we see the ways in which Scripture describes our, our thoughts and, and the, the sin struggle we have in our human nature with, with thinking. We recognize how hard it is to, to, to think deeply about things. In fact, sometimes, as we see the arrogance in thinking, our temptation, and this is kind of an evangelical North American thing, our temptation is to, to denigrate the intellectual life. The importance of thinking deeply. John Piper wrote a, a great book. Well, I haven't read the whole thing. I think it's going to be a great book. It's, it's a sabbatical project to finish it, but it's called Think. It's called Think, uh, subtitled The Life of the Mind and the Love of God. And uh, it's, you can download it for free, which 
it's one of the other things that I love about uh, John Piper's ministry there. It's, it's think. It's a, you can download the PDF. And the life of the mind and love of God. And here's what he says. He says, look, um, the solution to, to struggling with intellectual arrogance, the solution is not to abandon rigorous thinking. If we were to succeed in raising a generation of people who give up serious, faithful, coherent thinking, we'll have raised a generation incapable of reading the Bible. Why? Because reading is thinking. Listen to some scripture passages that that talk about our temptation to not think about reality rightly. Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that people who are separated from God are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.14, their minds were what? Their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened. Romans one twenty one. Romans one twenty one. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their minds weren't able to, to process reality around them rightly, to think deeply about how things really are. First Timothy six five talks about people who are depraved. Uh, I'm sorry, depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Second Timothy 3.8 talks about men who oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Brothers and sisters, there's a, a pull away from thinking deeply about life as it really is. And by God's grace, you and I need to be people of depth and of substance who are thinking about life around us rightly and are not living here just on the surface of life, thinking about the latest football scores or the, the latest um, advancement in work or the, the latest hobby that we're working on. Those things aren't bad, but there needs to be a depth that informs our thinking even about those things. We need to be deep people that are thinking about eternity in light of the present. Or say another way, present in light of eternity. So think deeply. If you're going to be a person who pursues deep relationships, think deeply about life. And then also refuse to pursue friendships that would, that would pull you towards other gods. Towards a superficial life. I want to read a hard passage from Deuteronomy 13. See, so often we think, we think my goal is that God would glorify this friendship. I want, I want this friendship to exist. And I want God to bless it. And so I want God to glorify the friendship when in reality it's the reverse. I want this, this friendship to be a means by which God is glorified. So often you and I pursue friendships that, that instead of helping us glorify God or calling us to pursue things that lead us away from God. How serious of a matter is that? Well, here's what Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 13. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. He's talking here about the, the capital punishment that was for those in Israel's culture here who would lead them away from serving Yahweh God. He says, look, even if it's a person who's your, the friend of your soul, 
your allegiance to Yahweh God is greater than that. So we pursue friendships and deep relationships. We're not pursuing friendships that encourage us to pursue other gods. In terms of the people who are influencing the way we think about life and reality, we're pursuing a depth of relationship with those who are pursuing God as well. Another practical application of this is, is to think, think about how and what you're going to communicate in your conversations with your friends. So if I want to pursue deep relationships with my friends, I need to think about what is it that I want to talk with them about? What am I going to communicate? Now, um, those of you who, who know me uh, well uh, know my issues, okay? So what I'm, the, my practical application of this is, is really nerdy and really type A, but this is what I do, and so maybe you can find a, a cooler way of implementing this in your life. But what I, what I do is I have, I, have, I have file folders on all of you. Um, I have these little, I have this, I have Evernote, and I have file folders of, of different areas of my, people in my life. So, you know, like my, some friends and, uh, you know, my family members and, and staff and, uh, you know, things. And I just, when I see something that I want to talk with someone about, I, I put it in that folder, okay? <laughs> I'm reading an article on something. Oh, man, you know what? This would be a good article to talk about with, with so-and-so. And so I, I put it in that folder. Now, I know, I know. Implement it as you will. But, but think, have ways, okay, okay, how can I have deep conversations about real things with, with people I love? How can I pursue depth? How can I know this person well and pursue depth of relationship? John says, look, I have much more to say to you. If you're thinking about people in your relationship, that you're in a relationship with, could you fit everything you want to talk with them on a single piece of paper? Or as you look at what you want to talk about, and say, man, I have much more to say to them. A single piece of paper couldn't contain all the things that I want to talk with them about. John and Gaius are able to get through this situation together because there's a depth of relationship. And John says, man, there's love your brother, beloved, 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 have much more to say. Here's the second thing. So think about how's my Christ, how's Christ-like love influence how I pursue Christ-exalting relationships? What do I do? Number two, I desire quality time with my friends. I desire quality time with my friends. Verse 14 says this, I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Now, as I read that, there's kind of an interesting thought that comes to mind. John is writing inspired scripture here. It's not like this isn't a very good letter. It's like saying, you know what, guys, as I'm writing this, I'm just this isn't a very good letter. Hopefully we can just talk face to face. I say that in emails all the time. Like, hey, I know I write this email and I'm not, you know what, let's, let me just pick up the phone. That's not what's happening here. Because this is inspired scripture. It's good stuff. But in terms of what John wants to accomplish in his friendship with Gaius, letter writing isn't going to accomplish that goal. And so he says, look, I have much more to say, but the things that I want to say and how I want to say it, I, I hope that we can see each other face to face, that we can, we can be in, in one another's presence and, and talk together. If I were going to describe to you a, a conversation that I had with my friend Josh, I might share with you some things that we talked about, and there's some things that I would leave out as I relate that conversation back to you. I wouldn't tell you about 
the way that he kind of pressed his, his glasses up to his, his forehead with his, with his finger or his thumb or something. I wouldn't talk to you about the little uh, twitch in his, his eyebrow whenever I said something uh, silly. Or I, I, there was a lot of things I wouldn't communicate. But those things that he would have done in our conversation would have added depth to that conversation, right? You know, it's like whenever you, you cook a steak and you, you put a little bit of salt or, or pepper on it, you don't cover it in that. But those, those things, those little things you put on it bring out the flavor. The same is true in a conversation. Whenever you're, you're with someone or able to see those little subtle things they do as you talk with them, there's a depth of the relationship that, that takes place through those little things that take place. And John says, look, I, I have much more to say to you. I, I want to see you soon. We'll talk face to face. How, how do we do this? Let me just talk about how I think in our culture, just some, some practical thoughts on how to do this. Now, as I share these practical thoughts, these are Daniel Bennett's thoughts. This isn't necessarily what John would have communicated in our culture. But if you don't apply it the way that I'm talking about applying it, apply it some way in terms of quality time. Here's one practical thought. One practical thought. Um, you need to see electronic devices as supplements and not replacements for relationship. Does that make sense? You need to see electronic devices as, as supplements to real relationship, not, not taking the place of real relationship. There's a book by a guy named Shane Hips called Flickering Pixels and subtitled How Technology Shapes Your Faith. And I disagree with a lot of the answers that Hips provides, but I think he does a masterful job at times diagnosing the problem. And he tells the story, for example, of two men. Each of them were in each other's weddings. They're the best men in each other's weddings. They lived a couple blocks from each other. They talked on the phone to one another, cell phone to one another, multiple times a day. And even though they lived just a couple blocks away, even though they talked on the phone couple times a day, each of them told hips, they said, our, our friendship is, is dying. We haven't seen each other in over two months. You can't replace face-to-face -face communication in the context when there's going to be a real depth of relationship. It's amazing how much technology shapes what we think about community. And here's, here's what, um, Here's what Hips writes later. He says, virtual community, he's talking about virtual community. He says, it's infinitely more virtual than it is communal. It's a bit like cotton candy. It goes down easy and satiates our immediate hunger, but it doesn't provide much in the way of sustainable nutrition. Not only that, but our appetite is spoiled. We no longer feel the need to participate in authentic community. Do you hear what he's saying there? Virtual community can be like cotton candy, kind of fills us up, but, but doesn't really satisfy our nutritional needs. And even worse, as we participate in virtual community, we no longer feel the need to be engaged in authentic, real community. He says, authentic community involves high degrees of intimacy, permanence, and proximity. We're in the same place. We're committed to be in the same place together. And we do life together like that. I was reading a study in Scientific American, and, and it's interesting. Whenever Scripture talks about our conversation, it draws attention to physical features, right? So it talks about our lips and our tongue and our eyes and, and all these, these physical features. And I was reading this, this article in Scientific American, and, and 
again, this, this is an inspired scripture, but I, I think it can help how we apply what scripture tells us here. The study took two groups of people. And it brought the first group of people into a room and kind of paired them off and told them to talk for 20 minutes. 10 minutes, they were going to talk about something meaningful, so some sort of story that had personal significance to them. And then the other 10 minutes, they were going to talk about something trivial. And so they did that. They brought the first group in. They let the, the first group left all their possessions, all their belongings, pens and phones and computers in a room and come and they just sit at this table and they, they talk. And at the end of that 20 minutes, the researchers gave them a quiz and asked questions about what they had talked about, and they tried to remember what they could. And then that first group leaves. Then they bring the, the second group into this room and pair them off, and they have conversations as well. Same thing, 20-minute conversation, 10 minutes, something meaningful to you, personal significance, and then 10 minutes, just something trivial. But there was one difference, one difference. That second group, they took a cell phone, and they just placed it on the table. Just just placed it on the table. And then they gave them the, the quiz. And here's what they found. They found that the ability of that second group, the group that had the cell phone on the table, to remember the details of the meaningful parts of the conversation significantly decreased. Just the presence of a cell phone. And I think part of the reason is, you know, that the cell phone re- represents someplace else. Not fully there. Now, I'm not telling you, you know, every time you get in a conversation with someone, say, excuse me, take your phone and just kind of chunk it. I've got my stuff to talk to people about on there, so I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I've got to pull up Evernote on that thing. But you need to be there, right? You need to be there. You need to be face-to-face. Also encourage us with, with this practical thought as we think about how we desire quality time. You know, seek out opportunities to talk on other people's terms. Love means sacrifice, right? And so as I desire to spend quality time with you, what that looks like for you may be, look different than me. And, and if I have this idolatrous perception of what a friendship is, for me it means, well, we need to sit over coffee. And if we're not sitting over coffee, then you're not really pursuing a relationship with me. And for you, it may be sitting in a deer blind. And for someone else, it may be taking a walk together. As you pursue friendships with others, your, your goal is for Christ-exalting friendship to exist. And so you're going to pursue friendship on other people's terms. So much more to say there. But I need to get to verse 15. Here's what verse 15 tells us. The third thing I want us to understand about how I pursue Christ-exalting friendships through Christ-like love. What do I do? Number three, I proclaim gospel peace to my friends. Number three, I proclaim gospel peace to my friends. Here's verse 15. Peace be to you. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them, by name. Now that that idea of peace, that's, that's a very Christian idea as, as John uses it here. And as we think about the relationship that exists between Christian friends, there, this idea of peace should be at the cornerstone of our relationship. What we have in, in common with one another goes, goes deeper than just a shared love of sports or the same interest in movies or same taste in restaurants. You and I relate to one another in terms of those who have received God's peace. What does Scripture tell us about peace? Just There's much more I want to say here, but let me just kind of quickly touch on a couple of things. We know that, first of all, that peace comes from God. Second Thessalonians 3.16 refers to God as the, the Lord of peace. We know also that we are naturally at war with God. Romans 5 tells us that. 
We're enemies with God, verse 10 of Romans 5 tells us. And we know, furthermore, that the peace that we have is received through Jesus Christ. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. We've been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1 tells us. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as we see in the New Testament, being peace receivers from God is integral to our identity, who we are. Romans 1, 7, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. 1 Peter 5, 14, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, you and I, as we come into this room and are in relationship with one another, we come into relationship with one another as, as fellow recipients of God's peace. I've received God's peace, you've received God's peace, and now as we, as we engage in friendship, we proclaim that peace to one another. You see, two people who have been reconciled to God proclaim that, that message of reconciliation in how they talk to each other and what they talk with one another and, and how they treat each other, right? Peace sanctifies and sanctification brings peace. It's It's circular. When John says here, the friends greet you, greet the friends, every one of them, uh, he's talking about an application of that idea that, that peace exists in these relationships. Now, it's interesting here, as you look at the text, it says the friends greet you and, and greet the friends. Uh, when he says greet the friends, that's, that's an imperative, that's an instruction. And some people, as they look at 3 John, I may even have said this as well, I said, well, 3 John has two imperatives, two instructions given in it, but the main one, I, I know I said this, the main one is there in verse 11, don't imitate evil, imitate good, that imitate good, that idea of imitation, it's one word in the Greek, um, that's, that's the main instruction, and that's the imperative, and then there's another imperative there at the end, it's, it's greet, but you know, it's just greeting. As I thought about it this week, I, you know, you know that's, that's a very important imperative that John gives there. Because who is he telling him to greet? He's telling him to greet the friends. Who are the friends? The friends are the other believers in Gaius' church. What are those people struggling with? They're struggling with this guy, Diotrephes. Some of the people to whom John is saying you need to give greeting to are people that are perhaps tempted to undermine John's authority and maybe have even hurt John relationally. And it's to those people, too, that John says greet them. The believers here greet you and want you to greet the believers there for us. As we think about how we proclaim gospel peace to our brothers and sisters in, in Christ, there's a couple thoughts I have. One, we need to have a very broad understanding of, of who our friends are. Our understanding of friendship needs to mirror God's understanding of his relationship with us, right? We've received peace from God. Now we proclaim peace to each other. How, how did God's peace get manifested to us? Well, well, first of all, we know that there was nothing inherent in ourselves that God responded to. God didn't say, well, you know what? I'm going to pick the, the best and the brightest to be my, my buddies. It was while we were yet sinners. I need to have a very broad understanding of who my friendships are. If I say, you know what? I, I, there's only like three types of people 
that's being generous. There's only one type of person I'm going to be a, a friend with. We have a very unbiblical understanding of what a friendship is, right? And you have, that's the thing, pro, practically, how do I pro, proclaim gospel peace to my friends? I have a very broad understanding of what friendship looks like. It's, it's other believers. Now, there's some obvious questions that I, I can't get into this morning because time and I don't know the answer. You say, well, how do we choose who we pursue friendships? How do, I, I don't know. I struggle with it. I was just talking on Wednesday with someone, her and her husband, I saw at the farmhouse and youth house. Boy, I would love to spend more time with them. Both of us talk about we're we're in different spheres doing ministry. We have a broad understanding of who we're willing to be friends with. And and then we have conversations with with our friends that that point to the gospel. We we talk with them about the reality of sin and the reality of a a God who's holy. And and we're we're having those conversations. And then then, then finally, as I think about practical application here, we we practice contra-conditional love with our friends. You've heard of unconditional love. Unconditional love means I say, you know what, I'm going to love you no matter what. Contra-conditional love says, I know that you are a wretch and I'm going to love you anyway. It's a much more realistic understanding of friendship, right? Unconditional love is a little naive. Contradictional love says, I know that you're a sinner like me, and you and I as fellow sinners are going to get into this relationship together, and my love for you is not going to be based upon how you treat me. My obligation to love you and care for you and do what is best for you in an eternal sense is not going to be conditioned upon what you do for me. My obligation to love you never ceases. That's contraconditional love. My friends should find me the most forgiving and gracious person in their lives because I'm practicing contraconditional love to them. See, if I have this Anne of Green Gables fairy tale perception of, of what a friendship's going to look like, I'm going to be very, very disappointed. But here's the, the beautiful thing Christ like love produces Christ exalting friendships. Friendships that are going to allow you and I to, to weather the difficulties of life together. Whenever I mess up, I know that I have a person in my life committed to practicing sacrificial love toward me. Whenever you mess up, you know that I am there in your life committed to practicing Christ-exalting sacrificial love for you. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life was not meant to be lived in isolation. The Christian life was designed to be lived in relationship. And you and I must be committed to the pursuit of these type of relationships if we are to glorify God as he's called us to do. I'm going to ask the the men uh, to begin to make their way forward to help us as we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in the Lord's Supper. We ask that you be a believer. I'd encourage you, if you're not a member of of a local body, you, you need to be pursuing that as well. Uh, but that's not a, a requirement we have uh, for participating in the Lord's Supper together. Uh, it's open for all who've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as you, um, as you prepare your hearts for communion this morning, they're gonna, we're going to pass out the elements here in just a moment after I pray. And I'm going to encourage you to, to ask God to help you repent of wrong understandings you've had of friendship, wrong goals, self-exalting goals you've had, 
for relationships and friendships, and that you would ask God to help you pursue, through Christ-like love, Christ-exalting friendships. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to ask the men to pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in his name. We thank you for the ability you've given us through faith in your son Jesus to, to live in community with one another in a relationship with you. We love you. We ask your forgiveness for how we have failed to manifest your love toward others and help us as a church to be a place that's warm, that's inviting, where other people can, can find the security of authentic community lived out for your glory. We pray now as we participate in, in your Lord's Supper together that, that uh, our hearts would be right before you. You forgive us of our, our failings and, and sin and help us to uh, experience the, the blessing that's a result of your son's sacrifice, a complete forgiveness through faith in his name, in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.